0: This is a podcast examining the lives and drives of creative thinkers. People who've turned their dreams into their career. Writers, directors, actors and public speakers, artists and musicians, fellow podcasters and more. How does creativity work and how can it pay the bills? This is Created By... My guest this week has produced films like Adult Beginners, Kicks, and Tangerine. He produced Dark Was the Night, starring Mursa Tomei and Charlie Plummer. He's a talented writer, director, and Emmy winner, who's also been a huge influence to me creatively, Marcus
1: Cox. We started in 2008 really with an eye to produce stuff that we love, stuff that we think needs to exist in the world. And I think the comps for that at the time was Frozen River, Winter's Bone, and No Country for Old Men. We saw those films and we're like, wow, like that's visceral and so real, like let's commit ourselves to doing stuff like that. It takes a lot of time to make a movie. I think certainly as a producer, you're on early, early and you're last off. So it's like, do I want to spend two years? Do I want to spend five years of my life working on this?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In that context, it's really clear. It's like, it's cool, cool script. Do you want to do this for four years? No, I don't. We're <laughs> Like, yes, I love this, I'm in. I worked for the state senate in Texas for a couple years. Then after that, I got into real estate and I owned my own real estate company with some partners in Austin and on the Texas coast. And my wife was acting there in Austin and found a bucket list in my desk. And it said things like, you know, see the pyramids and Aurora Borealis and drive a race car. And one of them on the list was make a movie. And so she came to me and said, hey, like, A, I didn't know that you had this in your desk. And B, why did you never tell me that you wanted to make a movie? Like, that's what I want to do. And. I don't know. It was a kind of a strange answer. I was like, well, it never really crossed my mind. It seemed like mm. something I would do down the road when the opportunity presented itself, as crazy as that sounds, looking back now. And she's like, well, that's what I want to do. Let's do it. So mm. I went to Barnes and Noble and I bought five books on how to produce movies and I read them cover to cover. And I was like, that's easy. <laughs> how hard can that be? I think I got it. So we kind of came up with an idea, and she wrote and directed and starred, and we co-produced in her uh, short film, *Los Encinos, and um, I was hooked. It had all the business stuff that I loved from real estate, and it had all the creative stuff that was missing for me. So it was really like a love at first sight.
0: Well, was there anything that surprised you about taking on a producer job? Like, what was like the growing pains to getting into that role?
1: Oh, man, I had no idea what I was getting into. I think, Um, you know, it's like planning a wedding. The forks don't just show up. Like somebody picked the forks and somebody went and got them and brought them there and somebody set the table. And I think that's a really important thing to remember when it comes to producing film. Like nothing just arrives. Mm-hmm. Everything to the last detail has to be there. And when you're doing it for the first time, like I was, I was like, I don't know how to fill out this insurance thing. And what does that mean? And like, do I really need Inland Marine? <laughs> you know, can we just cut that and save the money? Yeah. So it took me a lot of time to do everything the first time. Um, and the second time, it was a little easier. And yeah, I think that the biggest takeaway was that we had an idea on a napkin about a South Texas family and a Mexican immigrant family and about humans are way more similar than we give ourselves credit for. And a year and a half later, we were in a theater and people were crying, um, mm-hmm. watching the, the premiere. And that was the, I was like, oh my gosh. Have to do this. Mm
0: -hmm. Like a turning point.
1: That was the turning point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was just like, now I know what I need to do with my life. So that was the biggest thing. But all the little day to day producing things, you're just like, oh, got it. What happens when the generator breaks? Great question.
0: (laughs) That leads me to the question of the producer's role. And I think that's probably one of the least understood roles in Hollywood. Um, It's both business and creative. Mm -hmm. So can you delve into that a little bit? Like, tell me about your role as a producer and what that entails.
1: Yeah. I think it's obviously a more complicated question than it sounds because there's a lot of different kinds of producers. Some of them are tied to the creative where they've got a script or they're really close with a talented director. Some of them have experience in international sales. Some of them are tied to a studio so they can finance a film or get a film made that way. And it takes a village. So you'll often see lots of different producers on a project because they're bringing different elements. Mm -hmm. So it depends project to project, but really it's like, the industry is the unusual marriage between art and commerce and a producer's job is to try to blend the two as effortlessly as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true for my company. We want, you know, we want to make films that are profitable and the people see, because if we don't, nobody cares about our work and we may not be in business very long, Right. but we don't want to be, you know, a sausage factory. That's just like, we're going to get these elements and we're going to have these things and we're just going to churn them out because that's not fun for us either. So that balance is huge for us in everything we do, but you know, another way to look at it is like a general contractor. Mm-hmm. You assemble all the elements, um, or a chef. You, know, you get great ingredients, you put them together at the right time and in the right way, and at the end of it, you got an incredible meal. That's basically what producing is. We always pick a word. If the movie is one word, what is that word? Is it survival? Is it tragedy? Is it whatever? And we tell everybody on set, They've got the log line. They know what we're trying to do. We've had our, our meetings, but then we're like, you know, in everything that you do, just in the back of your mind, think survival. And that I think is, you know, like corporations having mission statements. The reason they have that because the guy at the front door and the CFO, they need to be speaking and thinking the same language in order to successfully convey that brand and the experience to people. And I think it's even more important on a film set because you're dealing with art you've got everybody on the same energetic page and same intention. So that's been incredibly powerful for us.
0: Adult beginners was one of your first like big projects for you. It starred Rose Byrne and Nick Kroll. Can you tell me about what that experience was like?
1: Yeah, it was great. I think, um, you know, I think people look at our films and they have a hard time sometimes seeing the connection between them. They're like, well, why did you do this? And then you did this. And, you know, we want to do things that make us feel. And that was a film that really we thought encapsulated that idea of when someone's growing from young adulthood into adulthood and you begin to see your parents as people, Mm -hmm. not as these mythical beings. Mm -hmm. So we loved that kind of early life transition moment. We thought it captured that so well. And then the humor was great. So we were excited to do that. And that was, it was an exciting film because we shot in Manhattan. So we, we got to play big movie. You know, we were like, we're mm. shooting in the city. So it was really <laughs> great. And the, and the cast was incredible. And Ross, our director, was great. So from top to bottom, it was a great experience. Well, how did you get involved with that project? I think WME sent that to us. I think Ross was just attaching and Mark Duplass was on it and Rose and Nick, Nick obviously was attached because it was his, you know, idea. And so we read it and we're like, this is absolutely in our wheelhouse. We want to be a part of this. So we got on board and I think we were shooting, I think four or five months later. So it was pretty fast in wow. terms of movie world.
0: Was there any kind of like major principal takeaway you had from that project? Any major lessons that you learned that you carried into the next thing?
1: yeah you know in each film you realize that there's going to be problems and I think by that point in my career i earlier on I thought if I did enough prep and I was careful enough and I was meticulous enough we would have a smooth shoot Mm -hmm. and that's you know crazy Um, (laughs) and by adult beginners I knew that that was crazy you just have to prepare as best you can and on that shoot we had I think five blizzards we shot for six weeks we had five blizzards polar vortex season the state of New York went into a state of emergency and we lost a, a location oh wow so I think the level of I don't know the level needed to be nimble at that point was huge so it made me look at stuff like there were scenes in, in the script that work that we liked that we just decided to scrap and not shoot at all hmm. and that was the big takeaway from me it's like hey if, if something if an act of God happens How do you shoot this movie without this thing? And how are you able to keep your movie on time and on budget? And we saw that firsthand in a real way. So I'd say that was the biggest thing for me.
0: So you produced the film Tangerine next, Mm -hmm. uh, and you could, I I think it's safe to say that's kind of a departure if you were looking at uh, the genre or feel of, you know, adult beginners. For those who haven't heard of it or seen it, can you describe the film? Can you talk a little bit about about what Tangerine is?
1: Yeah, so um, Tangerine basically follows a trans woman who's just gotten out of jail, She's looking for her boyfriend, Chester, on Christmas Eve. She's been locked up, so she's trying to track him down. He's apparently been having an affair with a cisgender woman. So she basically goes on this, um, it's, you know, a lot of people have been calling it a buddy comedy, which I think is wonderful, but, that you know, that's not what we were seeing at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they go on this uh, epic journey across Los Angeles to track down this woman and track down Chester. So all sorts of chaos and hilarity and real humanity ensues after that. What led you to Tangerine? I feel such an incredible sense of gratitude and privilege to be in this business, telling stories for a living, having toys and comic books in your office. It's absolutely incredible. I think we've also seen too, how our culture can shift so dramatically and rapidly based on storytelling. Mm -hmm. So you know, Murphy Brown drops in the 90s and people are up in arms because she's wanting to have a baby as a single woman. Then Modern Family comes out and people are up in arms. And now people are like, oh, Modern Family, I love Modern Family. It's all part of our cultural evolution to find more openness and love and compassion. So for Tangerine, you know, we, we want to make things that need to exist in the world. We want to champion people and we want to expose people to new ideas and more love and compassion. We love gritty stuff. We love things that we just, when we read them, it blows our hair backwards. Like, holy cow, we have to make this. And so Mark T plus is a friend. We did Adult Beginners together. He said, what are you guys into next? Like, let's do another one. And we're like, well, we're really wanting to focus on something gritty and something that we've never seen before. And he's like, well, I don't really have anything. And six months later, he's like, I think I got something for you. (laughs) He's (laughs) like, I don't know what you're going to think about this, but take a look. And Carrie and I both read it, and uh, it was a a short treatment. It was like four pages of pictures and like two pages of typed outline and ideas. And we read that and flipped through it, and it scared the shit out of us. But we were Mm. both in love, and we couldn't stop thinking about it. So we met Sean uh, on Larchmont and um, immediately knew that this was the guy that could thread that needle. His previous film, Starlet, was such a delicate portrayal, and it was done so tastefully, and in any moment, it could have gone slow or you'd lose the audience. And it would just hover that line the entire film. And, and after we, we saw that film, we're like, yeah, Sean is 100% the guy that's going to be able to do this. And it was a, a film about these women that had been ignored, that hadn't been seen or heard. And it was an opportunity to give a community a voice and love and respect that we hadn't seen before. So we were like, we're in 100%.
0: Now, Tangerine went through the
1: festival process, correct? Yeah. So, you know, we shot it on the iPhone, which was not what we planned to do. That was kind of a, an 11th hour thing. We just, we weren't sure we were going to be able to get what we needed on a larger rig. And we were concerned that people weren't going to take the movie seriously um, mm. if they'd heard it was shot on a, on a phone. Mm. So that was something that going into festival season, we were a little bit unsure of. But we got great news from Sundance that we were going to be playing there. So immediately we're thrilled, but did a lot to try to keep the iPhone stuff under wraps. Um,
0: Can I pause you there? Because I feel like that would be almost like a selling point, at least to like film nerds who are, you know... at least intrigued by like new formats and mm-hmm. like the potential of consumer grade material. Like, I feel like that could be a selling point, but it's interesting to hear that you were keeping that close to the chest. Did you, yeah. were you able to pivot into using that as a selling point at any point? Or was that always sort of a Yeah, we,
1: we totally, we did pivot uh, in a pretty big way beforehand. We didn't want it to be, you know, like, like someone's dad. Oh yeah, you know they're going to go out and shoot a movie with a, with the camcorder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kids, um, and that's what we were afraid of. That they just like, oh, these guys just literally shot something. That's crazy. And we wanted it to be taken seriously as a real film, mm-hmm. and we just didn't want that to distract from the story we were telling and the quality of the film. We weren't sure if it would, but we were definitely afraid that it might. Mm-hmm. Then the night of the premiere the feeling in the room was visceral. You could tell that people had just seen a movie and it had gone well, it was palpable. So we were excited. And then in the Q and A, someone said, this film looks pretty cool, what did you shoot it on? And I'll never forget, Sean Baker was like, we shot it on an iPhone and the room was just boom saw a guy from IndieWire like literally get out of his seat and sprint out the door. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, I think this is a really good sign. So yeah, that's at good. that point we leaned into it. The festival process for Tangerine is like a lot of things in film. Once you get critical mass, everything changes mm-hmm. and it's weird. It's like having it, an actor, you know, some people have it, some people don't. And it's mm-hmm. like some movies haven't, some don't, but your goal as a producer is always to get it there. And when we played Sundance, that was a huge stamp of approval, especially for a really small film like ours. And then the response from the festival was so strong. We had such love from the critics, which was huge for us too, Mm -hmm. I think. If the critics hadn't been so supportive of the film, we wouldn't have had nearly as much momentum or buzz. So we're eternally grateful to them for that. And at that point, a lot of other festivals had programmers that were in the audience and so they'd say, hey, we've got a spot for you at our festival. Will you come play? And, and then I think we did apply to a handful of others and, and got into some. And, you know, obviously others didn't have room for us or said, you've already played places. So, you know, that's the biz. But um, yeah, it was a very pleasant and easy festival experience, which is rare. Are you ready to do a lightning round? Lightning round. Yes, let's do it.
0: Yes. All right. So here we go. Texting or talking? Texting. Sweet or savory? Savory. Are you a morning person or a night person? Morning person. What is your favorite snack?
1: Favorite snack? I'd say uh, boudin and, and crackers.
0: Man, the boudin you make is just... I, I ate the whole thing, I'm pretty sure. It
1: feels right. It feels, it feels weird, right.
0: right. Yeah. Super strength or super speed?
1: Um, Super speed. What is your guilty pleasure song? Uh, Guilty pleasure song, I would say I like it by uh, Carton B and J Balvin. (laughs) That gets me fired up. Nice. Is Baby Yoda cute? No, he's cool, he's a cool dude. You like him, but he's not cute. How many spritzes of cologne is appropriate? I'd say one half a spritz and not directly under the shirt. Like you do it in front of you and then you walk through it. Yeah, you gotta waft
0: through the cloud. Would you rather ask for permission or forgiveness? Forgiveness. Have you ever gone to see a movie alone? Many times. On a scale of one to ten, how good of a dancer are you? In
1: LA, like a four. <laughs> in uh, in Tulsa, like a like a seven and a half. Okay, sliding scale. I get it. Yeah. How do you feel
0: about Marvel movies? I love them. Do you have a favorite? Oh man. Uh, I mean, I love
1: the Avenger. I like Iron Man too you I know mean, I'm all over the place now,
0: Iron but. Man 2 now that like we could have a whole different conversation about that but I feel like that's a that's an unpopular pick but I respect you for no that. Iron
1: Man as well I oh. would say Iron Man yeah all it of makes them. a lot more sense but yeah 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 um, but no I dig him I think it's pure spectacle man like you go in and get your popcorn and your drink and it's incredible I want to I want to make one
0: do you talk during movies
1: in the theater never um, at home all the time <laughs> Tacos or pizza? Tacos. Tacos
0: is always the answer. (laughs) What tree is best? Uh, Red Sequoia. The specificity is just great. I appreciate that. If you could time travel, when and where would you go?
1: I'd go see Buddha. I'd love to be a part of that even for just a minute. Would you rather be hot or cold? I'd rather be
0: hot. On a scale of 1 to 10, how good are you at poker? Uh, Probably a 5. Pretty average. Right down the middle. Finally,
1: what is the nerdiest thing about you? The nerdiest... I I love to sing, especially in the morning. So I love it. I think it's incredible. Um, The people around me, they're like, you don't need to be singing at 6.30. Or you don't need to be taking that tune that everybody knows and making up your own lyrics. So that's probably...
0: (laughs) I do that all the time. I'm glad to know that like, it's not just me, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I like it, but, uh, you know, whatever.
0: Tell me a little bit about what you're working on now.
1: It's been really busy, which is great. We've got a bunch of stuff. We, um, we were just recently nominated for an Emmy for a doc that we did with an incredible filmmaker based in Oklahoma, Kyle Kawika Harris. It's called I Stand, Guardians of the Water. And it basically documents the the struggle of the uh, Standing Rock Sioux Nation hmm. and their fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline.
0: Fun fact, since the recording of this interview, they actually won
1: that Emmy. So this is in line again with this tangerine type story and kicks and you know all the things that we're drawn to. It's an incredibly wonderful group of people out here that were underdogs against this thing and treaties violated and water potentially poisoned and we, we followed that journey and then just we're having to recut the dock now because um, just last week we got great news from federal court that they're going to have to do a new survey because they don't think it was done correctly the first time. So a really powerful, powerful thing to be a part of and Yeah, we're excited for that one. That's awesome. And then we've got a handful of features we're working on that are kind of in various phases. I've got a really lovely human rights drama that we're putting together. We are in the process of casting. We've got some distributors interested. So that's been great. We've got another project, Land of Enchantment, which is written and directed by Matthew Brown. It's a triptych about three women in New Mexico trying to find their way. And it's a story about the world and how we're all interconnected. It's kind of similar to Tree of Life in a lot of ways. So a very beautiful and spiritual film. And we're in the process of casting that now as well. I'm working with a really talented writer named Aaron Miles <laughs> on, <a>, uh, <laughs> on a psychological action thriller. I've heard of this one. Yeah, maybe familiar yeah. with that one. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to keep working on that one with you. We've got another one we we're working with two recent AFI grads. It's called Jelani. Um, and it's basically Boys in the Hood meets Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid, Mad City. Wow. It's just a really incredible look at this kid who grew up in South Central and is trying to be taken seriously as a man without being pulled into gang violence. He's wanting to pursue creative endeavors and um, coming up against you know systemic racism and then a lot of peer pressure in his peer circle. So it's it's one of those ones when I read it, I was just like, man, all of these you know Beast and I am Enchantment and Jelani and when you know, you know, so that's exciting. Yeah. It's been a really cool time.
0: The time that you and i have spent talking about projects i think has illuminated me more to the idea of being flexible and taking a more holistic approach to something where it's like the writer part of me wants to have ultimate control over the little details you know but it's also like if i want to sell the project there are certain considerations you take into account to make that realistic and so it's not just the idea of like artistic purity It's the idea of, like, this needs to work for every level, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, Mm -hmm. and, and, like, there are things I can do to maybe make this idea more sellable, which sounds kind of crude from an artistic standpoint, but at the same time, it's like, that's why we're writing screenplays, you know? Like, we want to sell it.
1: Yeah, when I think, too, I mean, Oliver Stone said, he's like, if you're working in the studio system and you can't find a way to make the movie you want, he's like, you're not spending any time thinking about how to do that. Leonardo da Vinci didn't paint the Mona Lisa because he wanted to paint the Mona Lisa. He did it because the Medicis paid him to do it. And that's, again, these constraints where it's like, you, if you bring me a really cool script and there's some crazy stuff in there that's cool, but you know not commercial, and there's big set pieces, me as a producer will say, hey, man, I love all of this. The reality of the world is they're not gonna make this movie at the cost that you need to have these set pieces in here and all these actors and all the special effects if you've got this more non commercial stuff in there. Mm -hmm. So we can remove that stuff and smooth some of the beats out for a wider release and they'll give you more money. Or instead of being on the moon or being at the Super Bowl, let's have it in a at a backyard barbecue or wherever. And then you can have those really strange beats and those really quirky non commercial things or It's just a balance. And I think when we're working with people, we're not coming in demanding things. We're just saying like, this is the reality of the market. We're gonna do everything we can to get this project beautiful and creatively fulfilling and powerful, but no one's gonna give you $15 million to do this movie. If you want this movie, they may give you two.
0: Do you have any advice or tips for people who are looking to be filmmakers or producers?
1: I think story is so important. Knowing how to do coverage is one of the most important things that you can do if you're starting out, or even if you're not starting out. I think coverage is that thankless task that, you know, let the interns do it. But that's like the Mr. Miyagi waxing the car. (laughs) You know, it's like if you can sum up a project in one page, if you can come up with a log line on the spot for something, if you can read a script and say what's working and what's not working and why and how to fix it. You have just jumped 90% of the people that are trying to do this and it's better to do it with other people's stuff because most of us, me included, certainly early on, I couldn't look at my own stuff with a completely neutral eye, mm-hmm. even as a producer trying to do that because your heart's on the page. Yeah. But if you can find stuff that, that maybe didn't get made or find a movie that was made and maybe didn't quite do as well as everyone had hoped, do coverage on that movie. Mm-hmm. And those story beats will help you as a director and as a writer and as a producer And then I think another thing that would be really helpful is to do a full breakdown on a script. If you want to be a producer, get your favorite movie and go in and do a breakdown. Every scene, just pick what characters are in this scene, what props, what art department, what things are on the page. And if you put that down, you'll begin to understand what it takes. There's really something to be said about getting out there and doing it. There's so much value in knowing how to be on set and knowing how to do things, whether you're a filmmaker or a writer or a producer. So go out there and do it and make mistakes and learn what's working and what's not working. Because every failure that you have is an incredible blessing in disguise because that's going to educate you next time. That's the fuel for your next success. And in my life, the the successes I've had have been wonderful, but I don't learn nearly as much from that as I do from the things that don't work. I also think, too, like that the cavalry is not coming is a great idea to remember for film and TV. You've got to do some incredible things before people take notice. So start building the groundwork, start experimenting, go make your incredible auteur indie film. But in conjunction with that, getting in that club and doing movies like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Tenant, that's a very, very specific group. Those are people that understand the ins and the outs of the business like nobody else. And when you understand how to blend creativity with commerce, you become a household name. I think it's vitally important to know what the market's doing, see what movies are, are doing well and not doing well, see what's buying and what's not buying. And we always talk about concentric circles at, through films. I, I want to make movies that people love and that make money, but I want them to be creatively fulfilling and pure. And the gap between you know, those two concentric circles where they meet, that's where I want to live. And I think that's, you know, think about it as you're moving forward, who you are and what you want. Um, Because if you don't do that, Hollywood will do that for you. You've got to be educated, you know. If if you come out here and say, hey, I have this short film, I'm ready to walk onto the Warner Brothers lot. It's like, you know, "Mm, probably not going to happen. So I think do that homework and know about that and take the steps, and when somebody says, come to this next table, go, receive it.
0: from an early age that I wanted to work in movies. Somewhere between Star Wars and Jurassic Park and The Matrix, I picked up this belief that someday, somehow, somebody was going to hand me a blank check and say, go, make your movie exactly the way you want to make it. Shockingly, this has yet to come to pass, but I went to film school with a lot of people who felt the same way. I've met a lot of people since who still do. There seems to be some inclination with us creative people, some... Reflex to insist on the purity of our vision, that different opinions only serve to muddy what would otherwise be a masterpiece. It's why getting notes can sting sometimes. We can get defensive of our creative voice. We treat our work as utterly precious to us. Marcus once introduced me to a philosophy for success that is both incredibly succinct and internally difficult to hear. Don't be precious. Being successful isn't just being right all the time. It's about navigating challenges and listening to others. About being flexible, embracing limits, and those uncomfortable parameters you'd prefer not be there because they always will be. So the next time you get feedback that say a scene is too expensive, don't blame the producer. Take it as a challenge to write a cheaper version. Your creativity will survive. And who knows? The extra push might even make you stronger. This podcast and its music are mixed and composed by me, Aaron Milas. If you haven't yet rated or reviewed this show, hey, why not? If you can take a few seconds to do that, it really does make a difference. It helps boost the show's visibility, and I know it certainly makes my day. You can find social info both for Marcus and Created By in the episode description. Please don't hesitate to reach out. I love hearing from listeners, and I want to hear from you. Next week, I sit down with author and novelist Adriana Mather. There's so much good stuff I can't wait for you to hear. She's brilliant and a fantastic guest. Make sure you check it out. Until then, I'm your host, Aaron Miles. Thanks for tuning in.